I'm going to read some scripture for us tonight. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 21. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, hey guys, how we doing? Good. So good to see y'all. So good. Thank you, Jacob. I feel very appreciated to be seen. Um, hope you guys are having a great week. Um, first week of first full week of class, right? So you're surviving. You're here. You're eating meatball subs. You're feeling good, right? So uh, glad y'all are here. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, we just heard our scripture for tonight. But if you want to have that kind of as a reference, we're not doing a full um, walkthrough of all that's in that text. But if you want to have it as a reference, that was Second Corinthians five. Uh, so you can have Second Corinthians five open. We'll reference that a little bit uh, tonight. Um, but as you're turning there, uh, we are starting a new series, uh, like mentioned, uh, called A Missional Life. And we're going to spend the next, I mentioned this briefly last week, but we're going to spend the next six weeks, I think I said four to six weeks last week, we're for sure doing six weeks, uh, talking about what it means uh, to live on mission with God in the world. What does a missional life mean? What does that look like? Um, I know we have a few all in here who are uh, even leading Bible studies at the BCM on, on a book called Life on Mission, and uh, some of that will be slightly referenced in here during the study. It will also parallel with it. Um, but I think that'll be a, a good compliment. But we are going to look at that for the next few weeks. What does it mean to live a, a life on mission? What does a missional life look like? I'm very excited about this series. I think it's going to be very helpful for us. It's going to be very encouraging and very challenging. I've already been very challenged in my study, in my prep for this. And I think you'll, you'll find it to be the same. Okay. But as we start, can I tell you a story? Can we have story time for a minute? Okay. It's so funny in, in like speaking, you, you say, can I tell you a story? And the eyes just kind of go up, you know? We just love stories. It's how we are. So let me tell you a story about a guy named Larry Walters. If you've heard this story before, um, just kind of, you know, follow with me. Uh, it's a fascinating story. So Larry Walters, he was born in the L.A. area, uh, I think back in the 50s or 60s. Um, and his dream was always to be an Air Force pilot. But the problem was Larry did not have good eyesight, so he couldn't make the Air Force. But he really had a dream to fly. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. And in 1982, he had this epiphany. 
Back when he was younger, he had noticed in his local army surplus store, they sold used weather balloons in the store. So he, later on in life, in 1982, got the idea to buy 45 of these weather balloons. He took them home, he filled them up with helium, and he attached them to his favorite seating device at his house, his lawn chair. He attaches 45 weather balloons to his lawn chair with the plan of, you know, slowly kind of moseying up into the air over LA, drifting over the Mojave Desert. He packed with him a few things. He packed a BB gun to shoot the balloons to help him come down. He packed a couple of sandwiches. You got to have snacks. He packed a CB radio. He packed a beer, of course. And I think that's all he had was about those things. All right. So he had, oh, and a compass to know, altimeter, didn't know how high he was going to go. So he gets ready, he has his 45 balloons tied, he's ready to go. He cuts the cord to his Jeep, and he actually accelerated a lot higher and faster than he planned. Within about an hour or so of cutting the cord, he found himself at 16,000 feet in the air, drifting not toward the desert, but toward the LAX air corridor, where planes are landing and coming off. This is all true story, I'm not making it up, you can Google it. There's debating accounts, I'm giving you the one that Snopes said was real, okay, Um, versus the one that was debatable. But so he drifts in the air corridor and he is spotted by a Boeing 737 pilot who describes it as, he's on the radio saying, so I think I see a man in a lawn chair sitting really still and I think he has a rifle is the way that the air pilot described it. So Larry's in the air, he's panicking, doesn't know what to do. He hadn't shot the balloons yet because he's not sure if it's going to like tip and he'll actually fall over. He wasn't expecting to be at 15,000, 16,000 feet. He finally gives up, says, man, I got to try to land this thing, start shooting balloons. And he, he actually does begin to descend. He begins to descend and actually gets tangled up in some power lines near there uh, and actually causes a blackout that shut out, shut down part of LA's area in a neighborhood for about 20 minutes at a blackout because of his antics here. But he gets tangled in the, cor- in the power lines. He doesn't get electrocuted, though, thankfully. He's able to climb down out of his lawn chair contraption. He called it, um, what was the name of it? I cannot remember now. It was like Invention One or like some kind of crazy name. And he, he climbs out of it. He gets on the ground. And he is promptly arrested and issued a $4,000 fine for blocking air traffic <laughs> in a lawn chair with 45 weather balloons. Uh, all a true story. Um, you can look, at, look it up. But so he, he, he lands, he gets through. He actually only had to pay $1,500 in the end. But he was interviewed later on by a news reporter. And they asked him, Larry, like, why would you do something like this? Why 45 weather balloons? Why all this? And I, I love his response. He said this. He says, a man can't just sit around. That was his answer. Yeah, a man couldn't just sit around. 45 other balloons. I'm going. You know, that, he's like, I, basically, he's like, I'm bored. You know, and, and he's like, a man can just sit around. I found something to do, and that was my, that was my dream. So, and that's what he did. You know, it's, it, you can go on YouTube. There's videos of it. Mythbusters did a thing on it. It's kind of fascinating. But I love that story, number one, because it's fascinating to me. But number two, as we start this idea of a missional life, um, if I can kind of turn it a little bit, I really believe that many of us are like Larry Walters. Maybe you're not, hopefully you're not trying to take 45 balloons and lift into the sky. But I think many of us, if we're honest, um, feel like when it comes to being a Christian, that we do a lot more sitting around than we you know, want to confess and we want to be honest with. That maybe we have this kind of compulsion and this feeling in our heart that we should be doing more, we should be more active in some kind of way. But we feel like we're doing a lot of sitting around. And if we're really honest, some of us may even say that we're, we're bored in our faith in some ways, if you want to be really honest. You, you, we hear about things like the Great Commission. You know, you hear in church over and over again the call to make disciples. You hear about how Jesus said that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not pre- prevail against it. We hear all these things. 
But yet, we don't really see much of that happening in real life around us. We kind of feel like maybe we're just existing, going from one week to the next, one test to the next, one semester to the next, one year to the next. And we can't think of maybe even one person that we've personally, personally led to Jesus in faith maybe in our lifetime. And studies show that actually about 90% of evangelical Christians have never discussed their faith with someone outside of their family. Which is ironic considering that we call ourselves evangelicals. <laughs> but yet, you know, most of us aren't doing any evangelism in that way. But the numbers in terms of churches are staggering. That 8,000 churches on average close every year in America. Only 20% of churches are growing, and get this, 1% of churches in America are growing by people actually becoming Christians in their church. Everybody else is just shuffling believers around in different ways, which can have its benefits. Many of y'all came here already Christians to our church. We're very thankful for you. But when it comes to living on mission and churches being on mission, prevailing against the gates of hell, it doesn't seem to be happening in the same way that maybe we would expect it in our country. So what's the deal? Like, well, what's the, the disconnect that we have, and why are we doing this series? Well, tonight, I want to kind of make the case as we begin this series, and as we talk about living on mission, that the word I would maybe use to kind of say what's happening is the phrase missional drift, or mission drift. And it's actually a business term, if you heard it before. But it's a di- business term where a company loses track of their original purpose and what they were created for. They get off track and they end up finding themselves way off doing some other kind of purpose way away from their mission statement. Lots of good examples, but Harvard University is one great example of that. Harvard, great school. But did you know that in 1636, uh, Harvard uh, was basically a seminary that they only hired Christian professors and their mission statement was to help students know God through Jesus Christ. That was the mission statement of Harvard in 1636. But while still a great school, I would not call Harvard a Christian college anymore, right? In any sense of the word. They experienced mission drift in that way. And I think the same thing happens in our lives, that we experience missional drift. That we begin over time in our faith to drift into living, into living for something else besides our missional calling in life as disciples of Jesus. So tonight, we're going to begin this conversation about what does it mean to live on mission with God in the world And we're going to consider really three things. Number one, we're going to consider some of the barriers, some of the difficulties of living on mission. What are some of the things that hinder us in that way? We'll have some honest conversation for a minute in that way. And then I want to remind us of two key elements as we begin this series that I think are very central and key for us to recenter on our mission. All right, but first definitions. What do I mean when I'm talking about a missional life? That word missional is like gospel-centered in the church, right? We, we, that phrase gets thrown around all the time. Everything's missional. Everything's gospel-centered now. But what, what, what do we mean by that? I'll give you two ways to think about it. Big picture, 30,000-foot view. To be missional, to be on mission, is to be a part of inviting people to be a part of the universal reign of God in Christ. Inviting people to be a part of the universal reign of God in Christ. If that sounds huge, it is, and it's on purpose. It's a cosmic, global, throughout all of history kind of thing when we're talking about living on mission. It's inviting people to be part of the God's universal reign in Christ. But another way to think about it, that's maybe more on the ground kind of perspective, is to live on mission is simply this. It's to live like an everyday missionary in your context. Wherever God has placed you, it's to live like an everyday missionary, which means you think like a missionary who moved across the world would think, but you think that way about all the people around you and your current context. You think about where you live, your relationships, your classes, your job, and everything else that you have going on around you, and you ask the question, what is God doing here right now, and how can I join in in that? 
how can I join what God's doing? You ask the questions like this, you know, who around me doesn't know the Lord? Who around me doesn't know the gospel or isn't a believer in Christ? And what can I do to both serve them and love them, but also to share the gospel with them and share the good news of this Jesus that has changed me as well? So, you know, we're talking way more than just a gospel presentation. And we're talking way more than just, you know, sharing the gospel with people. But we're not talking less than that when it comes to this conversation. Because to invite people to have a relationship with God, you know, to come into the universal reign of God in Christ, means that we do share a message. And we'll unpack that more later. But we do share a message of the good news of the gospel and invite them to respond. And we got to remember, it's important to know this, that we can't save anyone. anyone. Like our responsibility as being on mission it's not to save people. It's not to you know, convince them in some kind of supernatural way that we can't do to become a Christian. That's only the Spirit's work. Only God can save people. But we have a responsibility to be faithful in sharing the good news of what Christ has done. And if this all sounds like a lot of things to do and you're already like, Kyle, I already have a full load. I'm taking 19 hours this semester and I'm working three jobs at one time. Like, if that sounds like, if it sounds like more to do in your schedule, relax. Because the point of living on mission is, is not to add more things to your schedule necessarily. It may be. But the main point in living on mission is to find really gospel intersectionality, to find your daily rhythms, what you're already doing in life, and how the gospel fits into that, and how you can be intentional where you're already at and what you're already doing to live on mission in the gospel. I'm not asking you to add any more things to your schedule necessarily, but to look at your own rhythms, your own life, and ask, okay, where does gospel intentionality intersect into my life? Okay? It's a question we're going to ask. So, So to start us off here, what keeps us from living a missional life? So what I want to do for just the next few moments here as we start this conversation for the next six weeks is to be honest and have some real talk about the struggle of living as a Christian in 2020 today in a city like Tuscaloosa, things like that. Not that we have it the worst in the world, for sure, in America, you know, but we honestly do have some struggles that I think we need to be real about because if we're going to really experience growth and have the Lord move us more in living on a mission in life, we got to be honest with where we are first if we want to have God move us to where we want to be. Okay, make sense? You guys jiving with me? All right, so if you're looking at your outline, this is number one, okay? I use like one word things tonight, just keep it simple, but let's talk about some barriers for a minute. And just think through some of these with me. Some of these may be more relevant to you than others. But let's just be real about kind of the struggle that we have in the world today. Think about some barriers in two ways. Think about barriers around us and barriers within us. Barriers around us and within us. So think about around us in terms of our culture. What kind of culture do we live in today? Well, we live in a culture that's full of a lot of doubt and a lot of skepticism when it comes to faith. You know, our culture expresses doubt over anyone that has claims to universal truth in different ways. We'd rather let doubt many times keep us away from knowing things for sure than actually engaging in what may be true. And many times today in culture, uh, to claim that you actually know the truth is not only viewed as arrogant, but maybe even bigoted. That you're arrogant and you're bigoted because you claim to know what's true. Some Christians get viewed as having like an agenda to create some kind of theocracy in our nation because we want to talk about Jesus and the gospel. And sometimes sharing our faith can be viewed as some kind of power play in politics these days, some kind of evangelical claim. But the truth is that even though those are all true in our culture, the gospel still is a good news message. It's a message of good news. And really the gospel, like we saw in 2 Corinthians, it compels us to share the joy that we have in Christ with other people and to invite them into that, even in the midst of our doubtful and skeptical culture. So we have that. Think about another thing in our culture. Think about our culture of relativism and globalism. When I mean relativism, I mean people these days many times view truth as relative. You know, many uh, claims that were viewed at one time as objective and as true 
are now just opinions that you can debate. And you, we have that phrase like, yeah, you have your truth and I have my truth. You know, just kind of live your truth kind of thing. But the thing is, truth is truth. It's either true or it's not. Our perspectives can change on what's true or not. What's true. Our perspectives can change on, on truth, but the truth itself does not change. But our culture today is kind of bathed in relativism. And we also live in a really global society, you know, which can be a really good benefit. It's a beautiful thing, but it can really lead to many doubts because you may have a friend who's Hindu. You may have a friend who's Muslim. You may have a friend who's a, a Mormon or something like that. And you may think, man, like, my Mormon friend is really nice. He's a really cool dude. Like my, my Hindu roommate, she's really awesome. Like, it, it, is she really not saved? And is she really, when she dies, going to go to hell? Is that really like, if the gospel is that exclusive, is that true? That like these people that are really just nice people, they're really going to go to hell when they die? Like, is that the truth of the gospel? And that's a hard thing to reconcile with in a day and age where we're more global than ever before. We're more knowledgeable about things like that than we ever are before. But it's something we have to wrestle with. Our culture is also very individualistic. We're individualistic. You know, we just want to focus on our own happiness. Uh, we don't want to be troubled by other people. We think, just let me be true to myself and, and just worry about that. But the gospel, as we saw in Second Corinthians, compels us to not just live for ourselves, but to live for the Christ who lived and died for us, that we're compelled to live for other people. Our culture today is really, talk, really focuses on a religion being a private thing these days. That religion has become private. People say, you know, believe whatever you want, but don't try to impose that on me. And even worse in our, you know, very social media focused day and age, disagreement now equals judgment. That before we could disagree and just agree to disagree and have different perspectives and opinions on things. But these days to disagree with somebody more and more means that you're judging them, that you're condemning them, that you're calling them, you know, evil or on the wrong side of history or something like that. Um, and we have disagreement equal in judgment. And really... It doesn't help that politics and religion have become so intertwined in culture that sadly many people can't tell the difference anymore today. And I think in many ways politics is the new religion uh, because as the church has declined in society, people have begun to look more and more to politics for the, the ultimate hope in the world for world transformation. But that's a different conversation we'll have for a different day. But even just being like a quote-unquote evangelical Christian today in the world is a struggle because there's a lot of baggage that comes with that word evangelical. A lot of baggage comes with being a Baptist sometimes, even in the world today. I'm not sure if you've experienced that, right? I get asked that all the time as a Baptist pastor. What, what do I believe about certain things? And some of it I do, some of it I don't. I'm like, I don't know what Baptist you've met, but... I'm not one of those, okay? But, you know, there's a lot of baggage that can come with some of this stuff. But here's the deal. The gospel still compels us to live our faith out in the public square, even in the midst of baggage, even in the midst of that. A few more things will move on to within us, but two more. Uh, we live in a culture of pessimism and despair. Uh, you may have spent a lot of time on Twitter. I've been more and more into Twitter lately because I'm speaking at BCM soon and I'm doing cancel culture and I've decided to dive into Twitter to learn more about it again. And Twitter is the worst, okay? But, um... <laughs> But there, we just live in a culture that's full of negativity and despair about the future of our, our world and the future of our country. And I'll be honest, we have some real problems with some very complex and difficult solutions. I'm not denying that at all. And the church is called to engage in those problems. We're not called to sit idly by in our churches and let the world burn. But at the same time, the true hope of the world is never going to be found in a political agenda. It's never going to be found in a business leader, but it's always going to be found in the living hope of Jesus Christ. And that gospel trains us to live in light of Christ coming back and making all things new. But we have to have our hope in that and not in any person, any party, the government, anything like that. All right. Last thing about um, things around us and we'll move on is we live in a culture of busyness and shallowness. 
Am I, am, I, am I making you feel good about the world right now? <laughs> it's very encouraging. This is your Caleb moment, positive, encouraging Caleb tonight. Okay, we, we live in a culture of busyness and shallowness, you know, because we all feel like we don't have enough time in the day, right? Which is ironic because if we had more time, we'd just fill it up with more things and it would still, we'd still be just as busy if we had 28 hours in the day. I know I would, but we live in a culture that's just busy and we feel like we never have enough time in the day, but also maybe because of that busyness, maybe not, we want to keep our relationships, many of them at arm's length, because if, our, if we keep our relationships shallow, it's easier to avoid conflict and to, to avoid awkwardness, especially when it comes to faith conversations and things like that. And it's just easier that way. And I definitely feel that I've been there. Um, but the thing is the gospel yet again, like we see in second Corinthians, it compels us to more than that. It compels us to reorder our priorities and it compels us to reorder even our time to make time and space for people. All right. So those are all things around us. Let's talk about within us for a minute. Just continuing to be honest. Uh, they about barriers within us. What about our own doubts? You know, we, sometimes many of us, myself included, we struggle with doubts about our faith. We struggle sometimes, is God even real and active in the world? Is he good? Is he working in the world in the ways he says he is in the Bible? But we got to remember, if you look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, that right before the Jesus, Jesus gives the Great Commission, it says that some of the disciples who have seen Jesus rise from the dead, it says that even some of them doubted in light of what Jesus was doing. So if they doubted, we can expect doubt even in our day and age today. But in light of their doubt, in Matthew 28, Jesus promises his power and his presence to be with them as they go. So even in the face of our doubts, we have the power and the presence of Christ. Uh, Think about our indifference, not just our doubts, but our indifference we have. You know, I know for me, I struggle many times to be indifferent to the lostness of the world around me because it can be overwhelming sometimes. You watch the news, you spend time around modern culture and even sometimes you go on campus you can be just overwhelmed with the lostness around you and it's easier to be more distracted by entertainment maybe more distracted by your phone by your own busyness and your own schedule and we lose a central key of living on mission which is compassion for people to view people the way that god views them and i think about the life of jesus and how he was described as looking out on the crowds and seeing that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them Compassion, like a deep-rooted, just like feeling, like um, this burden in his heart over people who didn't know him, who didn't have a relationship with God. What about selfishness that we struggle with in our own lives within? Because, because of sin, what does sin do? It makes us selfish. It bends our own hearts to be selfish, to not care about the needs of people, especially that we don't know well. But yet again, Second Corinthians, the gospel teaches us not to live for ourselves, but for others. Two more, and we'll move on. What about our own fears? I can definitely relate with this one. What about our fears in living on mission? Because talking about faith, it's going to be awkward sometimes. Talking about your faith with people who don't believe, it can be difficult many times. And honestly, many times, and I'm a pastor, like it's my job to do this, not just do this, but I'm like a quote-unquote professional Christian. But many times, I struggle. I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid of being embarrassed and, and not having all the answers. And I have a master's degree in this stuff, and I'm afraid of not having the answers and not knowing how to respond sometimes in these kind of conversations. You know, that we're afraid, and I'm afraid many times, of losing friends, losing family. You know, maybe for some people, even losing their job can be involved in talking about Christ. But Paul in 2 Timothy reminds us that as Christians, we have not received a spirit of fear but of love, power, and self-control in Christ. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but within our own selves, we have the spirit of God living in us to empower us to be a witness. And last one, and we'll move on. Maybe for you, one of your biggest barriers is your sin. Is your sin. Maybe you think, man, like I have so much sin in my life that it just kind of disqualifies me from being much of a witness for Jesus. 
You look at your past, maybe you look at your present struggles, and you think, man, like, God can't use me. I, I struggle with, you know, I, I can't get away from this porn thing, right? I can't get away from this unhealthy relationship. I really struggle with bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart against someone who hurt me in the past. And you think, I, I can't get over this sin struggle. God can't use me because of that. Well, if you read the Bible, you'll find that that is not really true because the Bible is full of jacked up people who God used in incredible ways. I mean, Moses was a murderer and God used him. You know, Abraham was a pagan, you know, moon worshiping farmer who God called out of nowhere to bring uh, to himself. Paul was a terrorist, basically, and God called him to himself. And like some people who have some incredibly jacked up past and some major baggage, God chose to use them to expand his mission in the world. It's an old statement, but it's still true. Is that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And so, yes, we're still called to repent of sin. I'm not saying you just live in sin and still live on mission. But our own struggles don't disqualify us if we have a heart that wants to obey God and wants to submit to his will living on mission in the world. All right? We're not disqualified just because of a struggle that we have. And so all that said, all those lists that we just went through, all those things should do is this. They should lead us to a dependence on Jesus. The, the barriers around us, the struggles around us in our culture, the struggles within us, if we're honest, they should lead us to, if we're going to really live, literally live on a mission in the world, or really be a witness for Jesus, they should lead us to dependence on Christ so that we don't missional drift, that we don't drift from the mission. And so I want to give you two things tonight that I think will help us in avoiding missional drift and kind of set, up, set us up well for this series, okay? And the two things are this. They're real simple. The first one is our identity. We've got to remember our identity. Who here's read the book of Daniel before? It's a great book. First half is awesome. Second half gets really crazy, but it's really cool. Weird visions. It's, it's, it's awesome. Um, but the book of Daniel, I, I love it um, because in the book of Daniel, it tells this story. It tells the story of Daniel and some other men who were taken from Israel, who were taken to pagan Babylon, uh, really where everything in that culture was completely anti what they were raised to believe in Jerusalem and in Israel. And they're taken to pagan Babylon, and they have this chance to be chosen by Nebuchadnezzar to kind of live in this kind of royalty environment and be kind of leaders in the nation in some ways. But the cool thing about the book of Daniel is because... You know, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which always get so confused because they keep their Babylonian names in the book, but Daniel gets to call, be, called, be called by his, like, he's not Belteshazzar as much. You know, we don't remember him by that. Um, anyway, but that's a Bible nerd comment. All right, but for Daniel and his friends, as we'll say, uh, for Daniel and his friends, the cool thing is this. In the midst of Babylon in that time, they lived such faithful lives for God in the midst of a culture surrounding them that was so anti-God. It was so anti-everything they knew about their faith, but yet they lived boldly, and we have story after story that we recite in Sunday school today about the lion's den, you know, the, uh, the fiery furnace, even more stories in there where they were faithful over and over again in a culture that was so against what they believed. And they lived as faithful exiles in that time in Babylon. And I think for us today, really, we're kind of modern exiles in a Babylon. You know, I would say that America is, is far from a Christian nation these days, and it's more like Babylon than Israel. And then we get to look more to Daniel and the way he lived in culture than we do to other pictures in the Bible about how we want to live. And so how can we live faithful lives like Daniel? Well, I love this part of Daniel. It's interesting because you know all the stories about the fiery furnace, all that. But if you look at Daniel 9, there's a really powerful story where he's, being, he's having a conversation with an angel, which is pretty cool in and of itself. But he's having a conversation with an angel. But in the midst of the conversation, he talks about how at the time of evening sacrifice, this angel came and appeared to me. And it's a really random comment that you wouldn't pick up on. 
But if you think about it, at that time, Daniel's probably about 70 years old. And he'd been living in Babylon since he was a youth. But yet, he still says, at the time of evening sacrifice. Why is that a big deal? Because he hadn't been around the sacrificial system in probably like 50 or 60 years. But yet, he's still ordering his day and carrying in his heart the culture of Israel in the midst of a pagan country. So he let his identity be shaped first and foremost, not by the culture around him, but really by the culture within him, by the God that was with him. And I think the same thing can be true for us today is that if we want to live on mission, if we want to live a missional life, we can't be shaped by the culture around us. But we have to be shaped by the culture within us by reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ and living out of that. All right, if that makes sense. So let me remind you of two key parts of your identity as a Christian tonight. They alliterate because I'm a pastor. Um, the first two, the first one is this, is that you're secure. The second is that you're sent. Right, you're secure and you're sent. Think about these things with me if you're a Christian. That if you're a Christian here, you are fully known and you're fully loved in Christ. That God's love for you is not based on how well you've performed this week according to his standards. God's love for you, get this, is not based on how many people you've ever shared the gospel with. He doesn't have a tally sheet in heaven keeping up with that for how much he loves you. But instead, God's love, according to the gospel, is based on not your performance, but it's based on Christ's performance for you. That God's love for you is based on Christ's perfect obedience, his atoning death. It's not based on your performance. So you are secure that God's love is fixed on you. And God looks at you tonight if you're a Christian. It does not think about all your, your screw-ups, your failures, your disappointments. God looks at you and says, I am proud of him. I'm proud of her because they're mine. Because they're my child. I love them and I'm proud of them. And God looks at you not with disappointment, but with pride. But here's the thing, God, as our good and perfect Heavenly Father, does want more for us in life than to waste our time living for things not his mission. God doesn't want us to waste our time and waste our lives. He wants better for us, and he wants us to be part of his mission. And so he's calling us, even tonight. He's calling us and inviting us into his mission. But that mission, like we talked about last week, involves risk. It may involve loss in some ways. But the truth is this, is that if you're secure and safe in Christ, really, you may lose some things in this world, but you can never lose what really matters. And that's your eternal life in Jesus and your security and your identity in him. And that has to drive us to mission because of who we already are in Christ. And that's the second thing about your identity is that you're not only secure, but you're sent. You've heard it before, but we got to be reminded of it. Consider me the anti-Facebook in your life right now to remind you about what really matters, not the, not the cat videos, but what really, what really matters in life is this, is that you as a Christian, your primary calling in life is to go and make disciples for Jesus. More than anything else in life, more than your major, more than your dreams about the life, your calling, as great as those things are, and we'll spend a whole week talking about how does your calling fit in the mission later in this series, but more than anything else, your primary identity is a disciple maker for Christ. That the Great Commission to go and make disciples is the primary calling written upon your life as a Christian. So really that means that every Christian then is in a sense an apostle. Now you're not like an apostle Paul. You're not, you're not going to write a book of the Bible and get it you know, put in the New Testament. But the word apostle literally means sent ones. That's why the apostles got named that at first because they were called sent ones. So in a sense every Christian is an apostle that you're sent. And also every Christian is a preacher. Back in the day in the Baptist church, we called people like me preachers, and sometimes we still do. Now we're more like pastors and stuff, but they were brother, you know, brother Kyle and Pastor Kyle, things like that. In Haiti, I'm Pastor Kyle. Um, but, you know, but really the truth of the matter is this, is that every Christian 
is a preacher in the sense that you proclaim the gospel no matter where you go. Now, your platform of proclamation may not be like up front like this or in a pulpit, but your platform of proclamation may be a dorm room. It may be a dinner table, but you're called and equipped by the Lord to be a preacher in that sense. And so this call to make disciples isn't just for missionaries. It's not just for full-time pastors like myself. It's not just for those with the gift, quote-unquote, of evangelism. It's for every Christian. And honestly, my job as a pastor is not really to do all the work of ministry, but according to Ephesians 4, is to equip you to do the work of ministry in the world. J.D. Greer says it at his church, like he left the ministry when he became a pastor. His job is to actually equip other people to do ministry now. And so really as a pastor, my main job is to equip you and also, I'll do ministry as a Christian as well, but we're all called to minister in that sense, all right? Because the reason so many of us drift in our mission and m- maybe get bored in our faith is because we forget that we are indeed sent. So think about this for a second. This is Tuscaloosa, so I'll use this illustration. But imagine that you're, you're on a football team, maybe a really good football team that plays in this city. But imagine you're on a football team, or so, for, sorry, first imagine you're not on a football team and you're in a classroom and you have a person who's up front listing out plays about, okay, you here, you do this, you know, you here, you do this, you run left, you run right. If you're not on a football team, it would get really boring really quickly, right? To sit in there and learn play after play after play because you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm never going to use this. Like you're just making up plays and this is really kind of lame. Like I don't need to use this at all. But if you suddenly become on the football team and you're about to go out and play a game, then suddenly the play learning and the play calling becomes a lot more of a big deal. Why? Because you're about to run the play. Like you're involved in that sense. You're in the game. And so if we're not actively engaged in the mission, no wonder we get bored in church sometimes. No wonder we wonder, is this really apply to me? No wonder if we get more upset about the color of the carpet or the style of the music or things like that because we're, we're distracted from what really matters and we're focusing in on the things that don't matter. But if we're engaged in the mission, then the secondary things that really don't matter that much, they suddenly become really small because we're focused on what really matters in life. We're focused on listening to the play call from God's word to go out and run the play each week. So if you want to think about it that way as a football thing, every time you hear God's word, you're hearing the play be called about what you should do. Every message, every sermon you hear is like a play being called. So the point is not how well was the play even called, but are you obeying the play being called, right? That's the idea that we see. So that's the first thing we see is our identity, but let's look secondly at urgency for a minute and then we will wrap up. And I think really our identity as Christians leads us to urgency. It leads us to a sense of urgency in the world. And I don't mean urgency in sense of like despair or uh, pessimism, um, because honestly, the salvation of the world is not on our shoulders. We're not meant to carry that weight in any way. God is in control of that. He's in control of that. But our identity should lead us to a, to a sense of urgency because it should lead us to not want to waste our lives on anything less than God's mission. So let me, consider, let me help you consider three specific parts of this urgency. Three specific things. First off is the reality of hell. It's a hard thing to talk about, but it's the reality of hell. The scripture is very clear that only those who believe in the gospel will spend forever in eternity with God. And even globally, uh, there are over three billion, with a B, three billion people in the world today that live in an area where they have little to no access to the gospel at all. They're in what we call an unreached people group. Over 3 billion people today have little access to the gospel. Many of them have never even heard the name of Jesus. I've been to places in China where I've had conversations with people who I mentioned Jesus and they looked at me and said, who's that? 
Like, who's, who's Jesus? Or they would say, oh, I heard about him on the radio one time, but who is he? Like, what is that about? Who is this Jesus? Like, these people exist in the world. They're not just a commercial you hear or a pastoral illustration during a sermon. These people are real, and they have not heard the name of Jesus. That's over 40% of the world's population. It has little to no access to the gospel today, globally. But even more, 150,000 people die every day, and about a third of the world's population is Christian in some way. And so that's you know, roughly about 100,000 people every day that are dying who don't know Christ, who, according to God's word, are going to hell every day. And that may seem really heavy, but we need to hear these kind of things to sober us up. And maybe even in college you hear things like that. You're thinking, man, like, I mean, yeah, that, that's true, but in college I'm not worried about that. In college you have this mentality, I'm going to live forever, that you know, the, the future is in front of me. But James would tell us in the, the book of James that not even tomorrow is promised. So how are we living in light of that? The Psalms tell us to number our days and ask God to help us number our days and live in light of eternity. And is that what we're doing? Are we living in light of the eternal, um, eternal destiny of many people who don't know Christ? That should sober us and it should center us in the gospel. Second thing about our urgency, that we all will give an account for Christ in our life. We saw this in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul talked about how we will all stand before what he calls the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of what we did with our lives. And that scares me, but honestly, it sobers me a lot more because I don't want to stand before, before Jesus and tell him that I wasted my life. I don't want to stand before Christ and tell him that, yeah, I spent most of my years just worrying about making enough money and you know, just worried about kind of being safe and secure and comfortable in life instead of living boldly for the gospel and living a compassionate life for the lost. I don't want to do that. Uh, William Carey, the founder of Modern Missions, I quoted him last week. He has another quote that said this. He says, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. He's not afraid of failure. He's afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. And that doesn't mean that only evangelism matters in life, but it means that everything in our life has to be built upon the foundation of making disciples. And we don't want to waste our life. And then last thing with that, or the third thing of urgency, is that there is no plan B. There is no plan B, that Jesus didn't give us another option or give the gospel another option for getting to the world. That we as Christians and the church as a whole is plan A or our plan A for the world. There's no plan B. That you are God's plan A for getting the gospel to your roommate. You're God's plan A for getting the gospel maybe to a family member, to a friend, to a coworker. That you're God's plan A. The call to make disciples is not a general nebulous idea. The call to make disciples is for you. Like we said, it's written over your life. But with this, my my one fear in focusing on urgency is I don't want to create some kind of missional guilt in your life in some kind of way. That's not what I mean at all, not my intention. Uh, Because we got to remember this ultimately as we talk about urgency is that ultimately our mission in life and the mission of God has to be rooted in really two things. It's got to be rooted in love of God and love of people. It's simple. That's the great commandment, right? To love God, love other people. But for the sake of the tens of thousands of people in Tuscaloosa that don't know the gospel, for the sake of the billions of people around the world that don't know Christ, we can't miss this. We can't get this wrong. If the numbers are true with even in our country how the gospel's going, then we have so much work to do. And we're not in some kind of holy war against culture in any kind of way, but we are on a mission to be a living picture of Christ to those around us. Because if we believe the gospel is true, then it should compel us to live on mission in the world. If we don't live on mission in the world, we may, be not, we may not really believe as much as we say we do that the gospel really is true. But if we believe it's true, it will drive us to mission. So let's wrap up with this tonight, and then we'll discuss for a few minutes. Um, for you, are you on mission? Are you living a missional life? You know, where is God sending you this week? 
Where is God sending you this month, maybe this year, maybe this summer? Where is God sending you? And as you consider that, remember this. You can't live on mission alone. You can't live on mission alone. Jesus called 12 disciples to himself together to live on mission, and he called the church together. I heard this quote at a conference last year, but they said it this way. They said, God didn't give the church a mission. He gave the mission a church. He didn't give the church a mission. He gave the mission a church. So every church in the capital C universal church in the world really were built on not services and just programs, stuff like that. Those are all great ways to serve the mission. But really, ultimately, the Church of Christ is built on the mission of God in the world. It's the reason that we exist. It's the reason that we gather every Sunday is to express and live out the mission of God in our lives and to reach the nations with the gospel. So we're going to spend plenty of time talking about this and unpacking this more. This is kind of just a way to kind of get your mind thinking about tonight and this idea. But let me tell you kind of where we're going for the rest of the semester, and then we'll finish up. And discuss. So next week, we're going to talk about the missional God and how really, if I could sum up the Bible in like one word, it would be mission. That mission is the basis and the theme of the Bible. And we'll unpack that more. The week after that, we'll talk about our missional message. What is the message of the gospel? How do we share the gospel clearly? And we'll train you in that way. Uh, Third week, we'll talk about developing a missional strategy. You know, how do you plan intentionally and develop a strategy in your life, not just to be busy in life, but to be strategic in living on mission and having gospel conversations? The week after that, we'll have a talk on having missional conversations. How do you have natural conversations about the gospel and invite people to follow Jesus? And then we'll wrap up with the last week, finding your missional calling. What does it look like to live out the Great Commission in your calling as an engineer, in your calling as an accountant? You know, if you feel called and uh, feel drawn to international missions, what are some ways and avenues to get to that? And how does your calling, and first off, how do you find your calling, but then how does your calling and passion intersect into the mission of God in the world? So I hope this is going to be helpful for you, and we're kind of centering this all around leading up to Pursue Conference, because the theme is mission uh, this year, so I think it's going to be a great way to kind of focus on that and not be scattered around as much in our study. I think it'll be really helpful for us. And obviously, we'd love all of you to go to Pursue Conference to kind of tie a bow on this conversation, okay? But with that, I want to give you guys a few minutes to discuss at your tables, and we'll be done for tonight. So let me pray for you, and then we'll have some talks. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you so much for, number one, your love for us that you are the missional God who, who came to us, that you came to us in the depth of our sin, um, really in our rebellion against you, that you pursued us, that you set your eyes and gaze on us to bring us out of death, bring us out of uh, the depth and the, the brokenness and devastation of our sin, and you brought us back to life through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that you have pursued us, and therefore you have called us and empowered us to pursue other people, to be used by you, to be tools, to be vessels, to live on mission with you, that you would give us the insane privilege of being used by you and being sent out to represent Christ in the world. And I know this is a conversation that we sometimes hear in church a lot, but I pray for it tonight, Lord, that that you would impact my heart, you would impact the hearts of these students, to maybe for the first time see the gravity of our calling in life to make disciples, the gravity of our calling to live on mission. So I pray that you would guide us in our conversations tonight. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.